For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. If you're new to the podcast, I highly recommend that you listen to episode one. It's called A 30-Minute Case for Legalizing All Drugs. And that's going to give you the framework of how we think about the whole arc of drug legalization and where the work of End It For Good is coming from and where we want to go. So as a reminder with all of our guests that they may not agree with everything that End It For Good stands for. We may not agree with everything they stand for. But we want to bring a lot of diverse perspectives and experiences to our show And we're really excited today to have Detective Howard Wooldridge on the show to talk about the war on drugs from his perspective as a career law enforcement officer. Detective Wooldridge, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So since 2005, uh, Detective Wooldridge has been an advocate for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and he has worked in the halls of Congress and Washington, D.C. area. Uh, he's become an expert in the Swiss model of um, approaching heroin misuse, the heroin-assisted treatment or HAT programs. Um, mm-hmm. During his 18 years as an officer and a detective in the mid-Michigan area, he learned quickly the damage that drug prohibition um, is doing, and he's going to tell us more about that through our um, episode today. He retired from the police force in 1994 and moved to Dallas, uh, and in 2003 he became a lobbyist in the Texas legislature aiding the passage of a bill that gave judges the discretion to end jail time for simple possession of any illegal drug. Uh, In 2003 and 2005, he rode his horse, Misty, a total of 6,400 miles from coast to coast in both directions to spread the anti-prohibition message to Americans across 22 states that he crossed. So uh, anti-prohibition would be another term for legalization, which is another term for Mm -hmm. regulation. Um, and we wanted to jump in um, with Detective Woldridge today. So you're retired now. What are you enjoying doing most these days? Well, I really enjoy going to the halls of Congress, speaking to members of, of, of the Congress, their staff, uh, visitors, um, you know, moving the message, moving the issue forward, uh, as you said, anti-prohibition, and uh, helping everyone understand that as an educational role in Congress, that the their misplacement of faith that the law enforcement community can stop drugs is, is has been misplaced now for 47 years and a trillion dollars period. And the good news is because of the current epidemic of heroin now available every small town in America, my message is well received and people give me a good ear. And and they're, they're not going to agree with me right away, but they certainly now know the utter failure, the utter failure of this modern prohibition to keep drugs away from our, our kids and, and ourselves. And uh, so, so we are seeing serious progress in the halls of Congress, whereby nobody really believes anymore that if you, if you shoot a few drug dealers, you give them longer sentences in prison uh, or put up a wall or something at the, at the southern border, we're going to stop. We're going to stop drugs in this country. So there is an admission up and down. Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, everyone pretty much agrees that this is ineffective and will remain so under current strategy. 
So let's go back to what got you interested in becoming an officer in the first place, because I'm from what I have read uh, and watched of you. um, You haven't always been a anti-prohibitionist. So take us back to what got you interested in becoming an officer and then your journey into how you began to think about um, drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, Michigan State University, my alma mater, uh, had a ride along program and I was a long haired hippie, you know, child of the seventies. And, uh, uh, I thought, you know, but my father was in the military. And so I had this, a little bit of that attitude or mentality, but that I'm, I'm curious, what do the police really do in a, in a 10 hour day? And I signed up for an afternoon shift and it was, I like a child falling into a, a candy store, uh, Simply put, police work is uh, a bunch of little boys with grown-up toys. And the idea of going out and protecting and serving, uh, arresting a drunk driver, people blowing stop signs, um, and other things that that officers do, appealed to me from the very first time I I spent 10 hours in a patrol car. And from from that beginning, that genesis, I later uh, went to the police academy and became a, a regular police officer and then later detective. So when did you begin to see um, kind of this different side of what's really happening with drug prohibition? Uh, you became an officer. Um, at what point did, was there a, a moment in time when you began to see the lights coming on about what's really happening or was it a, a gradual mm-hmm. process for you? Yeah. Well, certainly I saw, I handled my first fatal accident involving a drunk driver, alcohol. Uh, in, in my first three months. And I said, oh, man, you know what? I'm going to dedicate myself to protecting people from the, the greatest threat you, re, you have to your life and limb, which is an auto accident, especially those by, uh, by drunk drivers. And uh, so I was fierce. I, I received awards, multiple awards from MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, etc. The epiphany that, that I think you're, you're alluding to came about when I was a detective doing a follow-up on a home burglary and I asked the gentleman, so uh, a, a better description of his grandfather's watch. And then he described it. So if I went to the pawn shop, I could see it. And then I, I, I asked the standard question, well, how much is it worth? And he replied, worth? It was my grandfather's pocket watch. It's priceless. He slammed his fist on the, on the chest of drawers. His wife over by the, by the doorway started crying because she knew how much that watch meant, and any insurance settlement for four, five, six hundred, or thousand dollars was not going to replace grandfather's grandfather's uh, pocket watch. And um, at that point, at that moment in time, I had the epiphany, and I said, "Why don't we let the crackheads, which is usually at that time in the mid '90s, you know, breaking into houses, let them have all the crack they want until they're dead? Stop bothering the good people of my city." And from that beginning, it, 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 that was the epiphany during my, my police time. And then once I retired, I went, well, yeah, if to let them have all the crack they want, you have to legalize and regulate. And from there, that was 21 years ago. But it was a, it was a, a horrible moment in my police career of, of feeling the pain and suffering of a victim of crime. And just so your audience knows, at that time, and still true today, Eight out of ten people breaking into your house today are going to do it for money for drugs. And that hmm. can all be eliminated if we legalized and regulated all drugs. That's a great point that a lot of the property crime 
comes from drug prohibition also? Because people tend to mm-hmm. think, well, you know, okay, so you don't have people actually selling drugs on the street corner anymore if we regulate. But, you know, you're still going to have all these people doing other crimes where they're harming people. We still will have some of that. But when you begin to really push into what's driving the vast majority of all crime, you know, of the murders that are associated with, you know, prohibition and gangs and that sort of thing related to drugs, the property Mm -hmm. crime that's associated with, you know, people who are trying to get money uh, for drugs. uh, So many things about, which is the connection point that you're making with the, with the pocket watch of eight out of 10 people having that experience are having it because of the prohibition system where people can't get, you know, what would be very cheap um, substances, you know, heroin's mm-hmm. been out of patent for a hundred years, um, very cheap to produce uh, and could be sold in a regulated way where people wouldn't be have, wouldn't be resorting to stealing and committing all these crimes against other people where they're really hurting people's lives if mm-hmm. we allowed it to be regulated and, and available in some way, in some regulated way, um, where it would take even a lot of those other crimes keep them from actually happening. So do you get a lot of, um, how do other officers see this? When, when I first started talking about legalization on my Facebook page, um, in, within a couple of articles, somebody messaged me and said, my husband's an officer. Are you anti-law enforcement? What, what mm-hmm. do, you, do you get those questions? How do you respond to those kind of um, questions of people feeling like maybe you're, you're turning your back on law enforcement as opposed to the laws? that may be harming people? Well, for your audience, uh, and if they're old enough, they remember the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit on our expressways where now you can go 70, 75. And I enforced that my entire police career. They ended it just after I I left. Um, We're there to protect and serve, number one, and we are there to enforce the law as written. The problem that police officers have that you might talk to or, or hear from is that almost all of us, certainly myself, have been to the funeral of an officer who died enforcing modern prohibition on a drug raid, a bad traffic stop, or the guys jump out of the car and shoot the officer. This happens you know, on a regular basis across America. So these officers know, and I've heard, I, trust me, my T-shirt says, cops say legalize heroin, ask me why. And I've had police officers jump right in front of my face, I mean six inches off my nose, screaming, how their best friend died in a drug raid. And if we adopt your ideas, he died for nothing. Blank you and the horse you rode in on. I mean, I get some real pushback from police officers, mostly because they don't want to believe their friend, their colleague, died in vain for this in this immoral and ineffective policy of drug war slash modern prohibition. Um, that's the that's one of the biggest motivators of police to oppose legalization. And the second one is the officers now for 40 years have been able to walk up to any car in America and go, I smell marijuana, get out of your car. And they, they, they make you wait on the side of the road for 20 minutes while they just tear your car inside and out. The fact that they did or did not smell marijuana, they could always claim that. And there's nobody to say it's, it's not true. So They don't want to give up that ability to search every car, every person, stop and frisk in the big cities. Um, And you can't come up to a car and go, I smell cocaine, get out of your car. It has to be marijuana. And that's why they're trying to hold the line everywhere across America of not legalizing marijuana, because that is their entry. That is their key 
to get into every person in America. And sadly, put it this way, and people know it, we have gone from protect and serve to search and arrest as our main focus of uh, on the job for 10 hours a day. Um, but you're absolutely right in your commentary. Legal cocaine, legal heroin would cost $1 to $2 per day. So you don't need to break into a house every day. And the Swiss have been for 25 years showing us we don't have to guess the reduction in crime rates. The Swiss have uh, taken their their heroin addiction population, allowed them to have either methadone or heroin, and it has dropped the felony case rate for those people by 80% in the second year and it stays constant at 80% drop. So we don't have to guess. We will be able to close half the prisons in this country when we have the courage to say this modern prohibition is the same as the first one back in the 30s with alcohol, and we end it. Hmm. I read an article recently by an officer where he mentioned what he considers to be the great moral injury that's happening to officers by sending them out to enforce drug prohibition, even though Mm -hmm. it's destroying people's lives. It's causing people to die from unregulated drugs where they're getting, you know, contaminated amounts and they don't know dosage and they're, they're overdosing. Is that term too strong for you, moral injury for law enforcement, or do you feel that that's appropriate? Well, moral injury, that's, that's something that, uh, uh, I mean, police officers, first responders in general, as you know, handle the worst, ugliest cases in society mm-hmm. that I would not burden your audience with. Uh, the detective, I handled pedophiles, etc., cetera, uh, you know, homicides. Um, and so we are subjected to that. The, the question of morality, though, in, in general, is uh, what I tell people, I get asked that, I was asked that at CPAC, the conservative political action conference. Uh, but what about the morality of legalizing these drugs? And my response is always the same. If you're not sure what to put in your body, per your religion, consult your religious advisor. I'm not qualified, obviously. Uh, but some religions allow stuff and some religions don't. And uh, in the pluralistic society we have in USA, uh, I don't want uh, strict religious folks, say the, the Muslims and the Mormons, telling me what I can't and cannot put in my body or Baptists or anybody else. Uh, this should be, you know, in, in my world, uh, a consensual action, a consensual activity of an adult in the privacy of their own home is none of your business. And that's my, that's my, my cornerstone policy and cornerstone belief that the police should be involved in only public safety, not your personal safety. That's a great point to make because people kind of conflate those two and think, you know, Mm -hmm. um, no, you know, if you're, we're just letting people off the hook for everything that they do. You know, if we, if we legalize drugs, we're just going to let people run wild and do whatever they want to. No, nobody is advocating for letting people just go rob people or murder people without punishment. What we're saying is if we legalize and regulate all of these drugs, there will be a lot less people committing other crimes, a lot less other crime to prosecute, but all of those crimes will still be prosecutable. If you rape somebody, you will be prosecuted for rape. Nobody that's talking about legalizing drugs is talking about just allowing anybody who uses drugs to have a free pass, to live however they want to and hurt whoever they want to. We're talking about whether or not it's criminalized to possess or produce or sell in a regulated way. 
these substances, but, but nobody's trying to downplay the the real harm that happens to people when you harm another person, as opposed to just the the choice to ingest um, this substance. So, how do you combat with with other officers when you're talking about um, officers who have such a investment in um, prohibition that for one their their own careers have um it seems largely been involved in enforcing the drug war but also very real losses from that war other officers being um being killed or great harm coming to um officers or their Mm -hmm. families because of it how do you address that kind of uh visceral uh experiential emotional response Mm -hmm. um that they have that is a very real cost to changing your mind yeah, and I mean I've seen it everywhere, and and one of the things for your audience, there are more officers who take their own life. Currently, suicide is a real problem, a growing problem, uh, significantly higher than than it was you know 20 years ago. And what we've seen all through this drug war, more officers will take their own life because of something connected to the drug war. Uh, just before I rode off on on Misty in in 2003. A lieutenant in charge of a drug squad uh, had, had dipped into the buy funds. He'd taken the $9,000 to pay for whatever, and the morning of the audit, he blew his brains out. Okay, uh, And that type of scenario actually will cause more officers to die than somebody on a, on a drug raid or stopping a car full of drugs and the, and the, and the bad guys shoot them. Uh, the corruption is something we almost never talk about. In fact, it's interesting, until 1984, long time ago, 1984, the federal government tracked all the corruption cases in the United States of police officers. It had for decades. In 1984, the Department of Justice stopped uh, tracking it because it had spiked so hard under uh, Ronald Reagan with all the money going on that uh, it was embarrassing to see all the number of, of police officials, police officers, etc., corrupted by this. So they stopped tracking the data. They stopped collecting it. Um, Which and that's when marijuana prohibition was and really ramped just up. Symptomatic of the degradation of my beloved, if you will, uh, profession of police work and uh, working with prosecutors and judges. Uh, this the corruption of this thing is off the charts to the point where we no longer track how bad it is because the numbers are so horrible. Um, and, and, and the officers that that jump in my face still besides. The funerals they've gone to, they keep talking about, well, haven't you ever seen a drug addict die? Yes, I have. I've seen him live. I've seen him die. And I also know that the, the uh, efforts of all law enforcement over 47 years of drug war have resulted in uh, heroin being available in, in my little town of Adamstown, Maryland, uh, a little small city of 1,000 people. So whatever people feel out there about drugs, good, bad, ugly, horrible, uh, making them illegal hasn't stopped anything. I don't know that most people really believe that. I think it is true, and I think I have found it to be true in the more people I've talked to. But I really wonder if most people really understand that, if they really realize that prohibiting a drug does not 
mean that it's gone. It shifts the market and it shifts where you buy it. Mm-hmm. You buy it on the street corner or, you know, under underground mm-hmm. somewhere as opposed to in a in a store. But it's still it's still there. So when people see um, I mean, different Facebook groups, not all of them, certainly prohibition related, uh, people will see, you know, that there was a big seizure of cocaine. And you can read by the comments that the the thought for many of them is that now cocaine will be unavailable in this part of the country for a period of time um, or that cocaine isn't currently available in, you know, you can only get that in big cities or that, you know, that because it doesn't operate uh, in plain view. Um, so help us help us really get a picture of how available substances are. Well, uh, not my opinion, not my uh, experience in talking to police officers. The DEA has a brochure they, they put out that says, quote, drugs are readily available to America's youth, unquote. So no less an authority than the, the, the premier federal drug agency, the DEA, admits that drugs, all drugs, are readily available to America's youth, let alone adults. And so this is an admission of failure despite the trillion dollars we spend and all the mandatory minimums and everything else, the civil asset forfeiture cases, uh, we are still a mosquito on the butt of an elephant. And let me give you another uh, personal anecdote on that, what you said about the supply. Uh, I went into an office of a a Kentucky congressman, and the aide was ready for me. He had a thick booklet prepared by the Kentucky State Police on all the seizures they had made, uh, I think it was in 2017, and he showed me all these tons and tons of marijuana and kilos of cocaine. And see, this these drugs never saw the the consumption by by Kentucky citizens because the police did such a great job of confiscating all these uh, kilos and, and tons of marijuana, etc. And I said, Bill, you've had economics 101. When you're sending cocaine, I said, let's pick Paducah. I said, Paducah needs 100 kilos of cocaine a month, let's just say. And you know that between the Mexican border and Paducah, the, the good guys, the police are going to get 20% of all the cocaine shipped, you know, a, a bust here and a bust there. And uh, so you're a smart businessman. If you know you're going to lose 20 kilos, what do you start out with in Mexico? 120 kilos. So as you lose 20 kilos along the route, you always end up with 100 when the final shipments come into Paducah to take care of your customers. And you should, I wish I had a camera, which is actually illegal in Congress, but I wish I had a camera, Christina, to show you the face of this bright kid, 25 years old, these are all bright kids, uh, going, you could just see his whole face go, the logic is inescapable. Mm. Yeah, the bad guys prepare for, say, a, a 20% loss of product between origin and destination, whether the origin is China with fentanyl or cocaine and heroin coming out of Mexico or marijuana, whatever, uh, they know they have to prepare for a certain percentage of loss. They overship. And so the customers are always happy. Usually the prices are stable. And that's why when you see 50 tons of, of uh, cocaine seized on a trawler in the uh, Pacific Ocean someplace, it doesn't mean anything. These are all losses. The bad guys uh, plan for. And that's why um, the, 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 the availability of all drugs is what the DEA said, readily available. Uh, but I'll just say one last thing on the, uh, 
the attitude, the mentality of the, especially the younger generation, say under 35, um, they don't think about the drug war. But for them, the, the drug war is like the sky is blue today because it's the sun is shining. They don't wonder why it's not green or yellow or purple because it's always been blue. The drug war is now so entwined with an American uh, consciousness, nobody is thinking about it, nobody's talking about it, because you can't argue with the sky being blue. Why would you even bring up the topic of war on drugs, which is so sad, because this got started 104 years ago. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I'm 35, so it has been part of everything I have grown up with. I've never known another way other than mm-hmm. marijuana being criminal, all the other, you know, currently banned substances being criminal. Uh, now this, uh, you know, new attempt to get Kratom banned and, you know, continuing mm-hmm. down this road of something makes us uncomfortable. We feel afraid and, you know, let's just ban it and that will make it all go away. That is such a great point about the the way that um, uh, the economics work of it because we think about that you know if you go to your favorite clothing store you go to walmart you know walmart doesn't have 20 percent of its shelves empty because of shoplifting they like you're saying they work in how much how much product do we generally lose and we ship that much more product so that our shelves are always full and it's Mm -hmm. basic economics um and you know cartels and dealers are are applying those principles to their profit margin just like every other business is and of course it doesn't yeah. we don't gain way, anything by the way they did studies back in the beginning of the drug war in the 70s in order to make and they have to they would have to confiscate about 70 to 80 percent of product in order to make it where they couldn't sell it basically and when i tell your, you and your audience 20 percent, i'm being extremely generous uh line officers dea guys who retire will tell you it's more like two to five percent. Yeah, that's what I've, I've heard. So I'm I've just heard. being generous just to be nice. Uh, but the whole thing is is laughable. And uh, guys who spent 30 years in DEA know the full well that when they from when they started in the DEA to now, drugs became cheaper, stronger and more available everywhere across the USA. Wow. That's it kind of seems like if we could just pull back the curtain just for a second, if everybody could see the world as it's really operating, as opposed to the way that we think and hope that it's operating. Mm-hmm. You know, we hope we're mm-hmm. keeping drugs off the street. We hope youth can't access them. We we hope we're making a dent in the supply route. And if we could just pull it back and see what's really happening, um, mm-hmm. you know, even even here, there's a... Um, uh, pastor that came to one of our book discussions and I was asking him about it and he said you know it, it, kids in our youth group get it at school I mean they're selling it in the halls mm-hmm. at school it's it's everywhere and um it, but we kind of sure. we don't really want to see I mean I have boys you know I have young kids and we don't want to believe that they have that they will have or do have ready access to it depending on you know my boys are really young still but um I tell you, uh I've got a question about that, you know, because talking about that, if you want to talk about peeling back the layer and taking a look at this. Now, obviously, the police are at the front lines of this thing. The DEA is at the front lines of this thing. What is the motivation for police not to wake up? I understand what you've already talked about. They're invested in this kind of emotionally, but they know this is not successful and they know better than anybody. They know it's at two or five percent. They know that this has been a failure. Is it the money involved? Is it the job security? Is it uh, a mission from God? What is it about law enforcement that they are really seem to be 
the most resistant uh, of all the communities. Yes, 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 and yes. Yeah. Uh, no, it, the, the the biggest. I mean, the FO, I was a proud union steward in the FOP. I, I negotiated contracts, etc. Uh, the FOP in Washington, I talked to their, their representative here, their lobbyist. When I first got here in 05, and he said, Howard, I can't, I can't support what you're doing. My job is to look out for the wages, benefits, and working conditions of 326,000 FOP members. And if we end the war on drugs, it's going to hurt our membership. Remember uh, that we will close half the prisons in the United States when we end this modern prohibition. That's about 200,000 prison guards out of work. They're represented by the FOP and the Teamsters, and they don't want to lose their job. Uh, we make, you give us, a, local, state, and federal, about $82 billion, B-boy billion dollars a year to enforce the drug laws. This is tens of thousands of police jobs, 200,000 prison guard jobs, and the suppliers to those those uh, industries, whether you, you make bear cats for the drug raids or battering rams or, you know, God knows what. And, and today, Narcan, uh, those guys are making a killing and they, de- they depend on uh, a thousand over literally about a thousand overdoses a day that re- that received Narcan. So they're making money hand and fist. You can be sure on Monday morning, their lobbyists will be down there and backhandedly saying, don't change the drug laws because we'll sell less Narcan. The, right. the Swiss the Swiss use almost no Narcan per year <laughs> because they treat it completely differently. Uh, the moral part, yeah. Uh, the religion is like a cloud. You can see it, but you can't touch it. And you never know when somebody says, well, I don't think we should legalize drugs, how often their motivation is that it's immoral. My religion tells me it's immoral to use marijuana or cocaine or any other drug except for alcohol and tobacco. And some, of course, religions say that's a bad thing. Um, So all those factors are in play. And one last one, uh, besides the good overtime for police officers, et cetera, is uh, making a marijuana bust is is a real good way to impress your sergeant, your lieutenant, your shift commander. And you can make lots of them if you want to be that kind of person and and go out and and bust, you know, two, three kids every day for, for marijuana. Uh, you'll, you'll make the sergeant happy because it looks really good for the chief when he tells the city council the stats for that year. Uh, see, our officers are high active and they're out there really, you know, getting these criminals. And the fact that it's meaningless in terms of public safety, nobody knows or cares about. So th- that brings up something that I have um, thought about in terms of how we view uh, success for law enforcement. So I hear often, I don't know how true this is. This is anecdotal. So I hear often that, um, you know, there is kind of, you know, arrest quotas or, you know, you're patted on the back for the amount of arrests that you make, um, which, which feels backwards in terms of public safety. It feels like the goal should be that we're, that the, what we hold up is the level of crimes actually being committed decreasing as opposed to the a number of arrests increasing because our clearance mm-hmm. rates are terrible for for other um crimes uh you know for mm-hmm. violent crimes here in the here in the southeast i think clearance rates meaning you know an arrest was made for the crime I th- they're below 50 percent um so you have violent crimes murders rapes you know um uh, uh 
property crime, theft, you know, carjackings, that sort of thing. Um, and the number of times that somebody is getting arrested in those is is less than uh, is just under 50 percent, the, the um, average number of that. Uh, and and yet we're we're zealously prosecuting um you know, drugs, proactively finding people who haven't hurt anybody else, but are breaking our, um, our, our drug laws. But how do you, how do you put all those things uh, together with kind of what we're focusing on versus what's actually maybe should be our focus? It seems Mm -hmm. like our hope would be that, that violent crime rates fall. That to me would seem like, you know, number one, that, that, that would show me public safety is better as opposed to if we just are arresting a lot of people, that means we're mm-hmm. doing a good job. Um, am I wrong yeah. in what I've heard or how, how does that all work together? Yeah, you're exactly uh, spot on, Christina. Uh, the very first police officer in the history of the world, uh, Sir Robert Peel back in London, that the the you can tell how effective we are when there's so few crimes right. versus lots of crimes to arrest people for, and hmm. take that philosophy that you just articulated. Yeah, we should be arresting a lot fewer people, um, and then only for people that, in my world, that that hurt others, and uh, that's the great conundrum here. Uh, as we boast about, well, we arrested six hundred and fifty thousand people for marijuana last year. Yeah, the trouble is we have uh, severely under-resourced other crimes like pedophiles in chat rooms. Teen sex slavery is alive and well in 2019 in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. This is beyond disgusting and horrible and immoral, but the money is in the drugs because of civil asset forfeiture, a whole other topic to talk about. We'll have you back and another day for civil, don't asset, have civil forfeiture. asset forfeiture <laughs> attached to catching a pedophile. Mm. You just don't. And please don't go down that road. You don't. This is a horrible way to run police work because uh, then you get into the whole profit motive. See, the profit motive for us is last year was about $5.4 billion, B-boy billion dollars in civil asset forfeiture. Uh, the money from uh, arresting a pedophile was zero. And this makes us put our resources into catching drug dealers versus pedophiles and our teen sex slavery. There's, there's just almost no resources put into it. Uh, child pornography. I, I could go on. The, this corrupts the entire criminal justice process. Because, by the way, it isn't just police who get the $5.4 billion. Prosecutors also get part of that money. So this is just a, <laughs> this is just a big big uh, tent of corruption of the law enforcement community, which drives them in the wrong direction. And as a detective who's arrested pedophiles, and I've got grandkids who are about to come of age and go onto the internet where these pedophiles now hang out as opposed to the, you know, the, the middle school. I am terrified for my, for my nine-year-old grandson hmm. that he's soon going to be approached by uh, somebody on the internet. Right. And uh, he might be attracted and, and meet in real life. And, you know, the rest of that horrific scenario. Mm. This scares me to go to work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. So we're going to have you back another day to get into civil asset forfeiture because we've just been changing our laws regarding that um, in Mississippi. Uh, the quick take is mm-hmm. it's the government's ability to seize assets of people that are that are. Um, accused or convicted, um, but often even mm-hmm. just accused of crimes. Um, and we'll get into that another day. But I wanted to ask you before we before we stop, um, 
how can regular citizens best um, support law enforcement? Particularly, I'm asking for myself personally. So I don't feel anti-law enforcement, but I am against a lot of what they're currently doing, the laws they're actually, um, you know, uh, upholding and enforcing uh, because so much of it is drug war related. How, what is the best way for people like me um, or, or others to, to best support mm-hmm. our law enforcement? Uh, maybe for me, particularly if, even if we don't agree with everything that they're mm-hmm. currently enforcing. Mm-hmm. Well, always keep in mind that the police will work as directed by their uh, civilian uh, mayor, the, the, the county commissioners, the governor. Um, so, Please, the most important thing you could do is to go to a city council meeting. You'll get, they usually give you about two or three minutes and say, how many arrests for drunk drivers did you make last year? How many arrests did you make for pedophiles? What resources are you putting into uh, uh, going after um, uh, people, you know, hurting our children? Um, and emphasize to the, the power structure that you want the officers to focus on public safety threats versus some, somebody smoking marijuana on their back porch or whatever. Uh, that has a powerful impact. If enough people go to the city council, county commissioner meeting, uh, the, the city council will tell the chief, stop wasting time on the marijuana. The citizens want you to put a full-time officer on pedophiles in, in chat rooms. Take, it out, take, the, take that police officer out of the helicopter or out of the drug squad and put him on to catching pedophiles. This direct citizen action can and does have an impact all across the USA, and that's the most powerful thing. Past that, it's send, a, send a, an email to your congressman and your senators and say, the drug war is a failure. Let's start making drugs a medical issue versus criminal. And we've seen some of that uh, lately, but it needs to accelerate. Uh, the next thing, of course, you're probably aware of is we should adopt Portugal decriminalization tomorrow all across America, both federal and state and local. Mm, Yep, totally agreed. Detective Howard Wooldridge, uh, who is retired now, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been totally fascinating uh, and really helpful, and we'll look forward to having you back um, in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about asset forfeiture and some of the other um, practices that are part of why the drug war has such an engine behind it um, to keep going. You can connect with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So um, Detective Wooldridge is a, a speaker for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. You can Google them or you can check them out on Facebook. They have actually my favorite Facebook feed of anything drug drug and criminal justice reform um, related. The articles they post are so helpful. Uh, the way that they approach it is so helpful. So um, find and follow the Law Enforcement Action Partnership on Facebook. Thank you so much, um, Detective Wooldridge, and we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thank you for the opportunity. I remain at your service. This is Christina Dent, your host, along with uh, Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. And we want you to continue to join us and to continue sharing with your circles of influence, um, considering a better way. You don't have to be totally certain of where you fall, and you don't have to be able to answer all of the uh, the questions um, in order to invite people to all, to learn with you. We're all on a journey together. Mike and I are still learning um, Detective Woldridge is still learning. We're all learning as we talk to more people uh, and as we craft the best policies that we can. And the way that we do that is by helping more people see that this conversation is being had and inviting them to be part of it. 
So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.